us our hearts and have us turn to you. God, we know you are powerful. We know that you are here through your spirit. So, Lord, dwell in our hearts through faith. We pray this in your holy name. Amen. Thank you. Thank you. Mark chapter 14 is where we are today. <clears throat> Mark chapter number 14. I'm going to begin reading in verse number 53. So if you have your phone or if you have your Bible, whatever it is you are following along with, you would find your place with me in Mark chapter number 14. Coming down to the short rows in the gospel of Mark. <clears throat> Today we have really two stories here. Uh, the story of the trial of Christ, or one of the trials, and then, of course, Peter's infamous denial. Verse number 53, the Bible says, They led Jesus away to the high priest, and all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes gathered together. Peter had followed him at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest, and he was sitting with the officers and warming himself at the fire. Now the chief priests and the whole council kept trying to obtain testimony against Jesus to put him to death, and they were not finding any. For many were given false testimony against him, but their testimony was not consistent. Some stood up and, gave, and began to give false testimony against him, saying, We heard him say, I'll destroy this temple made with hands, and in three days I will build another made without hands. But not even in this respect was their testimony consistent. The high priest stood up and came forward and questioned Jesus, saying, Do you not answer? <clears throat> what, is, what is it that these men are testifying against you? But he kept silent and did not answer. Again, the high priest was questioning him and saying to him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed One? And Jesus said, I am. And you shall see the Son of, Man, Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Tearing his clothes, the high priest said, What further need do we have of witnesses? You have heard the blasphemy. How does it seem to you? And they all condemned him to be deserving of death. Some began to spit at him and to blindfold him and to beat him with their fists and to say to him, Prophesy! And the officers received him with slaps in the face. And as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came, and seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, You also were with Jesus the Nazarene. But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you are talking about. And he went out onto the porch. The servant girl saw him and began once more to say to the bystanders, This is one of them. But again he denied it. And after a little while the bystanders were again saying to Peter, Surely you are one of them, for you are a Galilean too. But he began to curse and swear, I do not know this man you are talking about. Immediately a rooster crowed a second time, and Peter remembered how Jesus had made the remark to him, Before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he began to weep. You know, sometimes a thing or an event is better defined by what it is not rather than by what it is. 
Uh, for example, <clears throat> I have a friend who has been on the market looking for a bulldozer. And he knows that I'm into those sort of things, so he's been calling and asking questions. And he sent me a photo the other day of an old machine that he found somewhere in a junkyard. And it had had all the decals stripped off of it, and it looked like a bucket of rust. But he sent me a picture and said, tell me, what is this? And I sent him back a text. I said, well, let's start with what it is not. I said, number one, it is not a John Deere. So are you sure you want to even proceed with this transaction knowing what it's not? Uh, uh, by the way, how many of you have seen uh, my latest and greatest John Deere TV commercial? Have any of you said, look at there, look at there, look at there. Um, yeah, uh, my phone's been blowing up. Folk from Georgia, uh, Florida, Mississippi, and Alabama, hey, I saw you on TV. You know, it's like I preach every Sunday and on social media it's crickets, nothing. Do one little John Deere commercial and my phone blows up. I don't know what it is. Anyway, I'll be signing autographs uh, after church right out, right out here in the lobby. <laughs> Back to my point, some things are better defined by what they are not rather than by what they are. And that is certainly the case with this text that we have before us because what we have here is really not a trial. What we have here is more of a kangaroo court, but make no mistake about it, it's not a trial because so much of Jewish law was set aside and just absolutely ran over in order to get this conviction. There's tons of procedural things. There's tons of laws that were broken in order to get this, this conviction. So make no mistake about it, this is not a fair trial, but this is in every sense of the word a kangaroo court where some guys came together already with a foregone conclusion and now they're looking for a reason to support their foregone conclusion. So throughout this entire scenario, there's some things that we can define by what they are not rather than by what they are. And whether these things happened 2,000 years ago in the kangaroo court of the Lord Jesus or whether they happen today in public opinion or in our own mind and evaluation of Him, they are still defined by what they are not rather than by what they are. Number one. Let's see what this scripture has to tell us about what it is not. I think the first principle that we can extract from this passage is this. Rejecting Jesus is not made on the basis of evidence. Just mark it down. Anybody, anytime who has ever rejected the Lord Jesus Christ, it has not been on the basis of fair evaluation of the evidence. There is no such thing as an unbiased opinion when it comes to the Lord Jesus Christ. Did you know that? I mean, I've heard so many of these pseudo-intellectuals try to say that they come to the table with unbiased position, just wanting to look and see what the facts are in order to determine their conclusion about the identity of Jesus. There's no such thing as an unbiased position. Did you know that you are born naturally biased against Him? Every person who has not been born again by the grace of God is biased against Him and will not give Him a fair evaluation based on the historical evidence of who Jesus Christ is. 
And we can see that playing out right here in this kangaroo court as Jesus was before the entire Sanhedrin, all the chief priests and all of the people who had the authority that day to make a determination as to what his future would be. So if rejecting Jesus is not made on the basis of evidence, what is it made on? Well, number one, I think this text tells us it's made through the misrepresentation of facts. Through the misrepresentation of facts. Now, notice what the Scripture says that they did here. They were indeed trying to find some witnesses who would corroborate the opinion which they had already drawn beforehand about who He was and what they wanted to do with Him. But the problem was, at least give them this. They understood that these these witnesses were inconsistent and were contradicting one another. I mean, that's something, is it not? Because a lot of people today can't see the contradiction in their own minds and within their own arguments. But at least the Sanhedrin here knew that these testimonies were in conflict and were contradicting one another. I especially like the way this one is misrepresented. Notice in verse number 58. We heard him say, I will destroy this temple with hands and in three days... Uh, that was made with hands, and in three days I will build up another made without hands. Do you know that a threat against the temple was a capital offense? So if someone made a threat to destroy, as a terrorist would in our modern time, the temple, then that was, according to Jewish law, a capital offense that was worthy of death. But notice how they twisted this. If you'll remember what Jesus said, He didn't say, I will destroy this temple made with hands. He said, you will destroy this temple. And He was talking about His own body, by the way. So notice how they are misrepresenting facts, doing everything they can in order to get a legitimate conviction against Jesus Christ. So it's made, number one, through the misrepresentation of facts. Now, there's something I want to point out to you here that was required in every capital offense hearing under Jewish law. The defendant was allowed to call witnesses. But guess what? Jesus was not. He was allowed to call no witnesses. Isn't that something? I mean, just stop and think. If, if, you have to understand that His purpose was to come and to die on that old rugged cross to pay for the sins of you and I so that we could become the righteousness of God. So He didn't say, Your Honor, I object. I've not been able to call witnesses. You see, He had to go along with this scam in order to accomplish the eternal purpose of God, which was for Him to be the propitiation or the payment for our sins. But now, you know, you just can't help, as we read this as human beings, we just can't help but be on Jesus' side. Have you ever noticed that about yourself? You want to say, my goodness, Jesus. I mean, all you had to do was say this and this. All you had to do was call for those warring angels and they could have wiped out the whole place. But if He had done that, you and I wouldn't be where we are today, going where we're going when we ultimately pass from this life into the next. So it is a good thing that He was allowed to call no witnesses. But just for the sake of of our own curiosity, let's see what would happen if His defense attorney, had He been appointed one, would have called a few witnesses. What do you say? 
Why don't we just go right back in the Gospel of Mark for a minute and pull out some characters that we've already been introduced to. So, Mr. Defense Attorney says, Your Honor, I would like to call my first witness. And witness, when you take the stand, would you please state your name, tell us where you're from, and what is it that you know about this one who's on trial before this council today? Witness number one takes the stand. Sir, please state your name. Well, my name is Legion. I'm from the land of the Gadarenes. And here's what I know about him. You see, my name is Legion and was formerly Legion because I had an entire army of the demons of hell residing in me. I was a wild man. I didn't put on clothes. My people tried to chain me with logging chains and fetters, but I would break those off and then I would chase them out of town. I would pick up stones and I would take rocks and I would cut myself. I was a miserable human being. I cried out living in the tombs day and night. Then one day I saw this little ragged boat pull up on the beach down in front of the graveyard. And the demon said to me, run down there and scare those fellas off. And I ran down there and as soon as I got in his presence, I couldn't help but fall to the ground. The strength was gone out of my knees and this man cast those devils out of me into a herd of swine. They ran down a steep hill and they drowned themselves and now here I am clothed in my right mind, supporting my family and loving this man whom y'all have on trial today. Thank you, Mr. Legion. You can take your seat. Your Honor, I'd like to call one more witness on behalf of the defendant today. Sir, would you please take the stand, state your name, tell us where you're from and what you know about the one who's here on trial today. Yes, sir, I'll be glad to. Witness number two takes the seat. He says... Hello, Your Honor. My name is Bartimaeus. And I'm from that little town down there on the border called Jericho. And you see, I used to sit outside the road every day because I was blind and the only way I had to support myself was with this tin cup that I still carry around as a reminder of who I used to be before I met this one named Jesus. And I would sit along the side of the road and I would beat that, that can with a stick and I would ask people to give alms because that's the only way I had to support myself. But one day I heard this big entourage coming through town and I didn't know what was going on. It was something out of the ordinary. So I asked my compadres what's going on. They said, why Jesus of Nazareth is passing through. So I began to shout, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And my buddies who were there with me said, you fool, shut up. You don't want to call his attention. Look at you. Who do you think you are? Be quiet. But the more they told me to be quiet, the more I cried out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And the next thing I know, somebody came and grabbed me by the arm and said, get up. I can't believe it, but he's calling you. And I went and I stood in this one's presence and I was trying to feel around, see where he was. The next thing I know, he asked me, he said, son, what would you have me do for you? And I said, Lord, that I might receive my sight. He spoke the word and living color burst across my optic nerve. I've seen things I've never seen before. What a beautiful creation this is. I'm telling you, I don't know anything more than I was once blind, but now I I see, and it's all because of that man who you have on trial. Thank you, Mr. Bartimaeus. You can take your seat. Your Honor, the defense would like to call one last witness. All right, go right ahead. Sir, would you please take the stand, state your name, and tell us what you know about this one who's on trial today. Yes, sir, my name is Malchus. I'm the servant of the high priest. 
You see, about six hours ago, this court commissioned me to go down with a group of temple police and arrest this defendant who was in the Garden of Gethsemane. And we went down and Judas led us to him and we couldn't hardly see. It was dark in there, but Judas told us the one whom he kissed was the one we were supposed to get. And we saw Judas kiss this man and he was just a shadowy figure and we went to seize him. And one of his disciples, I don't know where he is, who he was, but next thing I know, he pulled out a sword and he swung it and I ducked and he cut my ear off and it went down and about cut my clavicle slap off and I was on the ground writhing in pain and there was blood everywhere. And the next thing I know, this one who's on trial today reached out and touched me and the blood dried up. The pain ceased. And I'm telling you, I don't know how he did it. But I'm telling you I'm here today whole without even having to go through physical therapy because this man touched me. Defense says, Your Honor, the defense rests as to the identity of my client. Hey, but wait a minute. What if there was one more who was called to the stand? Because here's what Jesus said in Acts chapter 1-8. But you shall be my witnesses. Did you hear that? He wasn't allowed to call witnesses at his trial, but buddy, he's called them now. You are a witness testifying as to who he is. So what if the defense that day had put Grace Church on the witness stand? Would there be enough evidence in Grace Church to convince the jury that this one is indeed supernatural God incarnate, the Son of God. Hey, let's get a little bit more personal. What if I was called to the witness stand? Is there enough evidence in my life to convince a jury that what, what, what has happened to that country boy, John Deere tractor driving, Copenhagen spitting, redneck from South Mississippi can't be attributed to a self-help program? can't be attributed to a good upbringing. Something has taken place here that we can't explain and the only way we can explain it is to say, but God! What if you were called to the witness stand? Would there be enough evidence in your life that God has indeed transformed, changed you in a way that can't be explained rationally in any other way except to say, my only explanation is this man did it. Wow. You see, he was allowed to call no witnesses. What is this? Well, it's certainly not a fair trial. It's certainly not on the basis of evidence. He was allowed to call no witness. But secondly, notice he had to be careful with his words. He couldn't say a whole lot in his own defense. Have you ever, did you read that through here? As a matter of fact, Caiaphas, the high priest, was getting upset because in all of these charges, Jesus was saying nothing. Caiaphas finally says, Son, don't you know what's going on here? Don't you know what we can do to you? Why aren't you defending yourself? Let me tell you why he didn't defend himself. Because he was more worried about saving me than, than defending himself. Huh? He was more worried about saving you than defending himself. And look, he had to be very careful with his words. You know why? Because the last time he spoke something, all of those policemen fell down 
their knees turned to jello, and their legs were like wet spaghetti noodles. They said, we're looking for Jesus of Nazareth. And he said, I am he. So when Caiaphas says, are you the one? Can you imagine how he had to tone his words down? Because the word of God is powerful. It's quick. It's sharper than a two-edged sword. And the last time he said, I am, everybody fell down. And he can't knock them down like a stack of dominoes now because this is the purpose for which he came into this existence was to die on a cross in order to save lost humanity. So can you imagine how he had to be careful with his words to keep from blowing it all? Because this is the Son of God. And if the incarnate word speaks the inspired word, some things happen. And he had to be very careful with his words. Number next, i got to run. Rejecting Jesus is not made on the basis of evidence. I don't care how smart you are, sir, ma'am. If you reject Jesus, you haven't done it on the basis of fair evaluation. You haven't looked at the historical evidence. You haven't looked and listened to the witnesses. You haven't heard His Word. You simply have a foregone conclusion. And you're making a foolish mistake. As the Sunday school lesson said this morning, judging yourself not worthy of eternal life. Check it out. Not only is it made through misrepresentation of facts, but it's made through misplaced faith. Misplaced faith. Do you know that everybody lives by faith somehow or another as it relates to Jesus Christ? Everybody does. Now check out what it was that Jesus said when Caiaphas asked him in verse number 62. Because here he is. Jesus is still trying to pull faith out of these men's lives. So he says something that should have initiated faith within them. Faith in who he was. Oh, it initiated faith, but the wrong kind. Check it out. Look what he says. Caiaphas says, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed One? And Jesus said, I am. Think of how he had to say that in order to keep the whole court from falling down. He probably had to say, I am. And look what else he said. And you shall see the Son of Man setting at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. He quoted two psalms here. He, he, he jammed them together. But notice what he's doing. He's trying to elicit faith still to the very last moment from his prosecutors. He says, I am. Now when Jesus says, I am, there's only one or two responses that a person can have. Did you know that? They can either believe him, that he is the Christ, and let him do a marvelous transforming work in their life, or they can either on the basis against all evidence say, you are not, and I don't believe you, and I'm going to condemn you to death. And that's what they decided to do. So it was misplaced faith. Hey, do you know that every person has faith in regard to Jesus Christ? I happen to have faith that He is who He says He is. And His Word has done a wonderful work in my life. Listen, He's not through. There's a lot of redneck that He's still beating out of me. You know what I'm saying? Huh? But I want to tell you, thank God, I'm not where I was when He found me on that John Deere tractor 30-something years ago. Huh? I happen to believe that He is the Christ, the Son of the Blessed One. He is who He says He is. 
But there are other folks who are betting everything that they have. They are betting the weight of their immortal soul that this man is not who he says he is. And let me go up the academic ladder on you a little bit and talk to you about this wager called Pascal's Wager. You see, Pascal said this, as he was reasoning with people sometime, by the way, he was was a philosopher, he said, hey, if I'm wrong in believing that he is who he said he is, then I've lost nothing. But if you're wrong in saying he's not who he says he is, you've lost everything for all eternity. Do you see what takes more faith? Son, it takes a whole lot more faith or foolishness to bet against him than it does to simply take him at his word and believe him. Notice what it was they were doing when they misplaced their faith. Number one, they were saying that he is not the Christ. Oh, it takes faith to say that, does it not? You are literally putting everything you have now and for all eternity on this one statement. He is not who he says he is. He's a liar. He's a scam artist. He's a con artist. He's all of these things rather than who he says he is. So they have faith that he's not the Christ. But notice what else is in this statement where he's trying to elicit. Because he says, yes, I am the Christ. But number two, you shall see the Son sitting at the right hand of power. Number two, you're betting that he's not coming again. Now look at this. You're betting against all of this by placing your faith wrongly against Christ. Number one, you're saying he's not the Christ. And number two, he's not coming again. Hey, I'm going to take his word rather than yours because he said, you shall see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Thank the good God of heaven. He's coming again. Huh? But those who have misplaced faith are saying, nah, that's a bunch of foolishness. He ain't coming again. And number three, here's your faith also. Not only does folk who reject him, not on the basis of evidence, say that he's not the Christ, He's not coming again and they're also saying that he will not condemn me for making this foolish estimation and evaluation of him. Because that's what Jesus said right here. You will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Hey, the next time he comes, he's not coming as a humble servant to die on a cross. He's coming as a conquering king to judge the world. Now here's the deal. You might reject him, and you might condemn him, but here's the irony. You don't condemn him, you condemn yourself. Because when he comes back, he's going to judge the quick and the dead. And the judgment's on the basis of, what'd you do with me? Was your faith rightly placed? Or was it wrongly placed? To those on one side, he's going to say, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your Lord. But those on the other side, he's going to say, Depart from me, you worker of iniquity, because I never, I never knew you. Hey, Christ is never condemned. Our rejection and condemnation of him doesn't condemn him, but it will condemn us. Says a whole lot about, you know, I, I, I read a review the other day of a man who was calling basically the Mona Lisa. The Mona Lisa, he said it's trash. And he just went into this tirade 
with art language describing how the Mona Lisa should not have the accolades that it has today. Now, you know when I got through with that, uh, with that article? Had my, had my estimation of the Mona Lisa changed one bit? It hadn't. But you know what his tirade revealed? It revealed he was an idiot. Because <laughs> huh? the entire world thinks differently, sir. So you just revealed that you have very poor judgment of art? You just revealed that you had very poor taste? So the rejection of Christ doesn't reveal anything about Him, but son, it does reveal a whole lot about the one who rejects Him. Check this out. What it is not, and I've got to hurry. Rejecting Jesus is not made on the basis of evidence. Number two, following Jesus from a distance is not effective. Now look, I fought for the last 10 days over how to preach this text because I want to be honest with you, I wanted to preach two sermons out of this passage. Because in Peter, what we have here is a perfect picture of your average nominal carnal believer today. It's summed up in one statement, Dr. John. Let me show you this statement. Right here in verse number 54. If you've got a pencil or a pen, you may want to underline it. It's key. Look what verse 54 says. Peter had followed him at a distance. Underline that. He followed him at a distance. Friend, listen. Following Jesus from a distance doesn't do you any good nor does it glorify Him one bit. And can I say that somehow or another today, we have postulated a brand of Christianity that says, look, you don't have to be a fanatic. You don't have to be sold out. Just come and pray this prayer, get dunked in this water, and you can stay on the periphery. You don't want to get too close. You don't want folk thinking you're crazy or a religious fanatic. Son, the Bible never anywhere purports that it's good to follow Jesus from a distance. As a matter of fact, here's what the Bible says. Draw near to Him and He will draw near to you. Man, it's a perfect picture of a carnal Christian. Wants to follow Jesus but wants to stay far enough back that they're not implicated into who He is. You know what I mean? And here was Peter following at a distance. Following at a distance. Now, you know, I can't help but at least give Peter a little bit of credit here. Because after all, there were 11 of these disciples left, and Peter was the only one even remotely within the same zip code, huh? Everybody else was gone. They were hiding under the rug somewhere. So let's give Peter a little bit of credit. He was still following, howbeit he was following from way back there, Dane. You know any believers like that today? They following from way back there. As a matter of fact, they following from way back. You can't tell if they following Christ or if they're just in the crowd. Huh? You know what I mean? And here he was. Now, why is following at a distance not effective? Well, it's not effective and you won't be effective as a person, as a believer. You won't be effective in life. Why? Well, number one, because of a failure to prepare. Now, why was Peter following from a distance? Let's go back to that Gethsemane scene. Do you remember what Jesus told them boys to do? He said, y'all stay here and pray while I go a little farther. He came back three times, and every time he came back, when they were supposed to be praying, because Jesus said, pray that you enter not into temptation, because 
The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. He went off three times, came back. Every time he came back, what did he find them doing? Were they praying? Bombarding heaven with their supplications? No, they were snoring. They were snoring. So they failed in this moment of peace that God had given them before literally all hell is going to break loose in two hours. Boys, you don't prepare when it starts breaking loose. You prepare in this moment of peace that I've given you. Pray, pray, pray. And rather than praying, they decided to sleep. So when the hell did break loose, were they prepared? Heck no. Heck no. So they failed. Here the one who prayed sweat drops of blood was there being falsely accused and allowed himself to be railroaded for me and for you in a mock trial of a kangaroo court. And here Peter was, who was not prepared, following at a distance. Man, you know why it's so important that we prepare in moments of peace? You know why it's so important? For example, just to be be in God's house on a regular basis. Because I'm convinced that what we do here really does have the markings of the divine. Does it not? If it don't, I mean, we might as well close up shop and go to the house. And man, when God's Word is preached, you know, God is preparing you through the preaching of His Word for what you're going to face on Monday morning. And if you miss it on Sunday, you're going to walk right into a storm on Monday and you're going to be just like Peter. You're going to be unprepared. And the next thing you know, you're going to be following at a distance. And your entire faith is going to be ineffective. And folks say to me sometimes, but I don't understand. Why is all this happening to me? I mean, I'm a... Well, let's just see how close you've been following lately. And you go to dissect that thing and you find out that they're way back there somewhere. Because it just doesn't work. Your faith is ineffective if you're trying to follow Jesus from way off. Hey man, draw near to Him in this moment of peace. Because you never know what your tomorrow is holding. Check out number two. Why is following from a distance not effective? Because number one, because of a failure to prepare. Number next, because of hanging out with the wrong people. Let me tell you what you're going to do when you're not close to Jesus. That void that He normally fills in your life is going to be filled with somebody else. And here Peter was hanging out with the wrong crowd. Look, look, let me show you this. Look with me in verse number, verse number 54. Peter had followed him at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest and he was sitting with the officers. Who? Sitting with who? He was sitting with the wrong team, guys. Was he not? He was hanging out with the wrong crowd. When you follow at a distance, I'll tell you what you're going to do. You're going to want to blend in. The devil ever told you that? Just try to blend in. And here he was with the officer. The enemies, the opponents of Jesus, the one who had drug him in there, now here Peter is hanging out with them. Hey, your faith will be ineffective. If you're not prepared, because the next thing you know, you're going to be hanging out with the opposing team. Now, check out what else is going on here. i gotta, I got to run. Because of hanging out with the wrong people. Who are you hanging out with? You know, that's the part of grace groups, Dr. John. I've got to hang out with you guys. 
to have your influence in my life. If I don't hang out with you guys, I'm probably going to hang out with the wrong guys. You know what I'm saying? And their influence will be seen in my life as well. Some folk can't understand why they're not getting it. And the bottom line is, I mean, it's cliche, but you can't soar with the eagles if you're hanging out with a bunch of turkeys. You really can't. So who are you hanging out with? Now, I'm not saying we ought to isolate ourselves from all lost people. When we hang out with lost people, it ought to be for the express purpose of being a witness. Not doing with them what they normally do. So here Peter was following at a distance. He was hanging out with the wrong people and because he was seeking comfort in the wrong place. Seeking comfort in the wrong place. Now look at this. Look with me in verse number 54. He was warming himself at the fire. He was hanging out with the officers and he was warming himself at the fire. Verse number 67. Seeing Peter warming himself. Let me just stop right here. Hey, hey, when you're in a bind, when you're in a bind, where do you run to for comfort? Have you ever thought about that? Because that's a telltale sign of your spirituality. When you get in a bind, I mean, some people run to food. We call it comfort food, right? Some people run to another crowd, the wrong people. Some folk run to all sorts of things. If you're following at a distance, you will not run to the right place. Listen, when you're in a bind and you need some comfort, I promise you the people hanging out by the fire can't give it to you. The officers, those who are opponents of Jesus, can't give it to you. When you're in a bind, you've got to run to Him. You've got to take refuge in His Word. Take comfort in His presence. So where do you run when you get in a bind? Hey, if, if the world fell apart on you tomorrow, who are you going to run to? Where are you going? You going to look for comfort in a bottle of southern comfort? <laughs> Ain't no comfort there, Daddy. <laughs> where are you going to seek comfort? And here Peter is seeking comfort by the fire of the enemy. Now notice what that fire did. And here's what it will do for you too. Peter wasn't thinking. Because he, when, he, when he went up to that fire to get warm, guess what else fire produces? Not only heat. Say what? It produces light. So now Peter gets up there trying to warm himself at the wrong place and all of a sudden the light of the fire illumines his face and somebody says, wait a minute. I know you. See what I'm saying? You seek comfort at the wrong place, it's only going to escalate your problems. Huh? So notice what Peter did. I want you to see this. Peter said, oh, no, 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 no. I'm not one of them, but wait a minute. The more you try to defend yourself, the more your speech gives you away. Because Peter's speaking with a country Galilean accent. So the little girl says, wait, you are. Because not only did I see it in your face, but I hear it in your voice. Because you're a Galilean. You're speaking with that country hick accent. You are one of them. So the more you try to fight it, the more your problems. Don't seek comfort in the wrong place. It'll save you a world of hurt. But notice what else Peter did as he was in this wrong place. Look, look in verse 68. He denied it saying, I neither know nor understand what you're talking about. Now here's another one of those key words, key phrases. You may want to underline it in your Bible. And he went out onto the porch. 
So he's by the fire drum, right? Now, the fire warmed him momentarily, but it illumined his face and it gave away his identity. He tried to defend himself, but his speech gave away his identity. And you too, you ought to talk differently if you're a believer. You ought not be able to hide it. You ought not. Not for long anyhow. So he says, I got to get out of here. This is just too bad. These circumstances are horrible. I got to go to another place. So what did he do? He left the fire drum and he goes out on the porch. But the little girl follows him. I mean, she's just a hound dog, isn't she? She follows him out there and says, Oh, yes, you are. And everybody else says, Hey, wait, we do recognize you. You are. Hey, mark this down. Mark it down. Here's a spiritual truth you need to find, find lodging in your heart today. Changing your physical location will never change your spiritual condition. Did you hear me? Peter now... He's been hanging out with the wrong people in the wrong place. He's even denied Christ twice. Now his thinking is so convoluted and perverted he can't even think right. He's thinking, these are bad circumstances. i got to get out of these circumstances. I know what I'll do. I'll go out on the porch. I'll be a better man out there on the porch. Mark it down. Changing your physical location will never change your spiritual condition. I've got friends in ministry. Here's what they think. They think, you know, if I could just get out of this church and pastor another church, life would be good. I've got friends in tough situations. And they think, you know, if I could just get out of this marriage and get into another marriage, that would solve all of my problems. I've got friends in churches that think, you know, If I could just get out of this church and join another church, everything would be good. But watch me. Changing your physical location is not going to change your spiritual condition. Do you know why? Because every time you move, guess who you take with you? (laughs) You take you with you. You're right. And I've got some, 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 some friends that they just move from one place to the next and they're never happy. They're never satisfied. Their circumstances never change. And they never have the thought of, wait a minute, what's the commonality in all these situations? You know what the one common factor is? You. That's exactly right. So man, if if you're trying to run from circumstances, that usually never works. Most of the time, the circumstances are not our problem. Are you with me? We are the problem. And sometimes God orchestrates our circumstances in order to change us, not our circumstances. Can I say to you, I've been in some tough situations before in church. I have. I mean, I've been in situations in church where I have had to have police bodyguards because I have been threatened with credible threats of death. And I'm on my knees begging, God, God, in the name of Jesus, would you let another church call me like tomorrow? I couldn't be there before Monday morning. (laughs) And can I tell you what I've noticed now that I'm an old man, Dr. John? God has never moved me when the situation was tough. Never. God's never moved me. 
Hey, when I wanted him to, when I wanted to hit the eject button, God, hey, about right now would be a good time for another church to call me. It never happens. You know why? Because God's using that tough situation to change me because he'd say, son, listen, if I get you out of this church and put you in another one, you're just going to end up with that same problem over here. Because you're taking you with you everywhere you go. And I'm trying to save you from you. Don't be too quick to hit the eject button thinking that if you can change your circumstances, you'll be better. And life will be better. Because here's the truth. A change of physical location does not change spiritual condition. Just doesn't. I got to hurry because we got some stuff to do up here, don't we? Number one, or number three, why is following Jesus from a distance not effective? Because of a failure to prepare. Hanging out with the wrong people is what you'll do. Seeking comfort in the wrong place. And all of that ultimately leads to cracking under pressure. Once you've done all that, all the devil has to do is squeeze you. And guess what it is that Peter did? Look what he did. When the pressure came down, look here at what the Bible says, verse 71. He began to curse and swear. Now that word curse doesn't mean to use foul language and talk like a sailor. That word curse in the New Testament does not refer to the use of profanity. What it refers to is what Paul talked about in Galatians, anathema. And basically it's saying, may I go to hell. May God strike me dead and consign me to hell if I'm lying. Can I say to you how good God is not to give us what we ask for sometimes? Because son, if God would have done what Peter said right there when he was cursing, anathematizing himself, Old Peter would have wound up in hell forever. But God's a gracious God. And he knows that you're just there. You got your hiding in a crack because you ain't been doing what you're supposed to do. You ain't been following me close enough, son. But look, we're going to turn this thing around. And thank God, God did turn it around for Peter. He'll turn it around for you as well. Peter cracked under pressure. Now let me show you just a couple things and I got to get out of here cracked under pressure. Rejecting Jesus is not made on the basis of evidence. Following Jesus from a distance is not effective. And number three, returning to Jesus is not easy. It's not easy. I mean, we seem to soft sell this thing. How many invitations have I given by saying, listen, if you're not where you need to be today, with simple faith and repentance, you can come home. And you know, there's an element of that that's true. But can I say to you that, man, let me see if I can find this. It's in, um, it's, in, it's in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 61. Let me tell you what's happening. Here's Luke's account of this. Notice what it took for Peter to come home. Verse 61, Luke's Gospel, chapter 22. Right after Peter, right after the, the rooster crows... The Bible says the Lord turned and looked at Peter. My goodness. Now can you imagine what happened right there? Peter just pronounced a curse upon himself and he was swearing. So after that he was using vulgarities, huh? And right after he got done doing that, they're just leading Jesus out of the courtroom. There's a crowd of people, 500 people there. 
And Jesus coming down the steps. And in that crowd of people, it's like there's not a soul there but Peter. And Jesus looks at him bloody, having been beat and spit on and pummeled. And he looks and he makes eye contact with Peter. Good God in heaven. Peter just pronounced an anathema upon himself. And now Jesus looks at him. You see, that's what it takes for somebody to come home. You might be here today and you might be as far from him as you have been in your life. And let me tell you, the first step is Jesus isolates you in a crowd. And he looks right at you. And man, when he looks at you and you realize what you've just done, you've got to give it to Peter. At least he was looking in the direction of Jesus, huh? Had I done that, my head would have probably been down. I'd have probably been walking away. But at least Peter still had his head up and he was still looking at Jesus. And they make eye contact and their eyes lock in a crowd. So notice what Peter does. The Bible says, that look, Peter went out and he wept bitterly. Hey, we're not talking about one alligator tear in the corner of his eye. We're talking about where's the tissue because there's snot drops everywhere, huh? I mean, this boy is broken. He is on the ground. He is sobbing uncontrollably because he realizes he's been far away from Jesus and he did exactly what Jesus said. He denied his Lord after he said, I'll die with you if I have to. Listen, coming home is not easy. Every time I have found myself following at a distance, when I came home, you know what there was? Pain involved. Pain of having looked into the face of Jesus and realized what I've done. Sobbing. I worry about folk who when the invitation is given, they come and say, well, pastor, you know, you're right. I've been following from afar. And today I would like to come and just make the rational, intelligent decision and come home. Is that okay with you? No, most of the time how that happens is God isolates somebody in a congregation like this, locks eyes with them, they realize their broken spiritual condition, and they just fall apart. And when they get up here, my wife has to wash the snot stains out of my shoulder from folk weeping. See, coming home is not easy. Here's the best case scenario. Don't put yourself through that. You stay close with him. You don't have to wonder. You don't have to follow from a distance. But in Jesus' name, in order to have an effective witness in life, you're far away today come home it's not easy but hear me it's a whole lot better to cry now than to cry later because it's kind of like a cavity dr john you know if i feel like i got something wrong with my tooth i'm calling dr john because here's what i know i know it's easier to catch those things up front and let him just kind of tap it with a drill and say you're good rather than me saying no i'm scared to death the dentist even my friend dr john i'm scared to death of him because if I put it off, he's going to have to drill it out and maybe do a root canal. If I put it off more than that, he's probably going to have to pull it out and put an implant in. My gosh, do you see? It just keeps getting worse and worse and worse. If you follow him at a distance, it might be painful to come home today, but watch me. It won't be near as painful to come home today as it will be tomorrow. Don't put it off. In Jesus' name, get back where you belong. Would you stand with me, please? Father in heaven, thank you for your word. God, so many times we find ourselves in the life of these biblical characters. 
And God, would you help us this day stay close to you so that we can be effective not only for our own sake, but for your honor and for your glory. Thank you for Grace Church. God, would you help us stay focused, stay committed, stay faithful, because you're worthy of all glory, all power, and all dominion now and throughout all eternity. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Dr. John's up here on the front row. God's spoken to you today and you need to get home. I promise you it's not going to get better until you do. Just change in your physical location. You can say, you know, I'm going to put it off today and go home. It'll get better. But changing your physical location won't change your spiritual condition. The only thing that changes spiritual condition is good old-fashioned repentance. So in Jesus' name, if you know you're not where you ought to and Jesus has isolated you today in a crowd, you know you need to come home. I ask you today, just be obedient to Him. You won't regret it. In the darkness we were waiting Without hope, without light Till from heaven you came running there was mercy in your eyes to fulfill the law and prophets to a virgin came the word from a throne of endless glory to a cradle in the dirt praise the father To reveal the kingdom coming And to reconcile the lost To redeem the whole creation You did not despise the cross For even in your suffering You saw to the other side Knowing this was our salvation Jesus for our sake you died conquered death and the dead rose from their tombs and the angels stood in awe 
for the souls of all who come to the Father are restored. And the church of Christ was born, then the Spirit lit the flame. Now this gospel truth of old shall not kneel, shall not fade. By his blood and in his name, in his freedom I am free. For the love of Jesus Christ, who has resurrected me. begin. Um, Alyssa, you want to be first? All right, come on up here. <clears throat> now again, this water is hot enough to boil crawfish in it, so be careful. Just stand up. Don't sit down yet. Because look, <laughs> I got some things to say, and you don't want to be sitting in there while I'm just talking, you know what I mean? You know, I, I am a fan of childhood evangelism. I think we must teach the gospel to our children. While I'm a fan of childhood evangelism, I am not a fan of ch childhood manipulation. And there is a ton of people today who as a five or six year old were just kind of pressured at a vacation Bible school to close your eyes, pray this prayer, repeat after me, and then let's dunk you. And you know, the tragedy of that is some of those folk grow up and they never realize that they had never been born again and they become church leaders. Could that be the reason why the church today is so powerless and so ineffective? Is because, as Billy Graham said, 80% of the folk in our churches have never been genuinely born again by the Spirit of God. Alyssa was one of those. She says, I can't tell you what happened to me, but I do know that there's a difference. And she knows the difference now. And hey, there is a difference between being just a wet, baptized, or just a wet, don't sinner, as opposed to being a born-again, baptized believer. So, we rejoice with you, girl. Now, take the plunge. You sit down right there. Yeah, at Grace Church, we got to know that you mean business with the Lord. And this is how we do it. Alyssa, 
I'm going to make it fast in obedience to the command of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. It's my privilege and honor to baptize you in His name. Woo! Here. Don't worry about the floor. You get it as wet as you want to. Okay, Troy, come. Troy's testimony is similar. We had a conversation not long ago and he told me that he just knows that he needs to do this because of a similar situation. And, and, and I said, Troy, how do you know now that something's different? How do you know that the Spirit of God has brought you to life spiritually? And this is what he said. He said, because now I have a hunger for things that I used to not have a hunger or appetite at all for. You see, when we're born again... One of the first things that we have a desire for is God's Word. Have you ever noticed you don't have to teach a baby to drink and eat? You don't. They just come. That's part of the package, isn't it? And when somebody's born again, you don't have to teach them to love God's Word. Peter says, as newborn babes, you desire the sincere milk of the Word. And Troy has that desire. And you don't have that desire unless you've been born again. So he comes today to follow through in believer's baptism. Okay, Troy, let's do this. Again, I'm going to be quick with you because I know how cold it is down there. Troy, man, we're so grateful to be a part of your family and to see what God's doing in your life. And man, He's just begun. It's only going to get better. It's my privilege to baptize you, my brother, in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Was it bad? All right. Grace Church, will you stand with me? Before we close, I want, I want you to know, um, just like the text says, the invitation is still ongoing. When you leave this, this, this building, it said Peter went out from the presence of the Lord before he came back. And, and uh, if the Lord's dealing with you with something, I want you to know, myself, uh, Dr. Allen, Mr. Cliff, Mr. Uh, Mr. Dane, we'd love, we'd love to pray with you. We'd love to counsel you. Um, and, and help you draw near to the only one who, who uh, can wipe, wipe your tears away with his own hands. Uh, for the rest of us, at his trial, he didn't call any witnesses. But guess what? Now he has. It says in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest part of the earth. And, and here's the thing. I, in, in that text that we read today in, in Mark, you know, every, every witness that they brought, it was a false testimony. It was an inconsistent witness. Grace Church, let's make, let's make sure that our witness, our testimony, is consistent to the truth of the gospel how we were all, and, 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 and listen, you may have, like me, you may have grown up in church and feel like your testimony isn't that big of a deal, isn't a miracle. If you have been born again, it is a miracle. Amen. And so I, you have, some, you have a, a testimony to share uh, this week as we leave this, uh, leave this place. I hope you're encouraged to go out and be a witness for Jesus Christ. Grace Church, you are sent.